and welcome back to The City Speaks. I'm your host, Spark City, as always. And this week's episode is going to be about competing forces. Uh, we're going to start off talking about them in gaming, then we're going to move on to some more uh, real-world examples. Uh, as a foreword, last week, I, uh, last week, excuse me, I spoke about hard work versus luck uh, being presented as a dichotomy. Uh, this was not the right usage of the word dichotomy. Uh, dichotomies typically entail mutually exclusive opponents. Um, you know, two things that cannot coexist where hard work versus luck is a question more of like ratio and what, and most people would agree, you know, they're both needed to some degree. So they're not, uh, they're not dichotomous. I think framing the question as like, what's more important felt like it's pitting one against the other, but it's not mutually exclusive. Um, so it's not a true dichotomy. Thanks to my brother Scott for pointing this out. So speaking of pitting two things against each other, masterfully executed transition this week we're going to talk about competing forces like i said going to go through a few instances in video games as this is ostensibly a gaming podcast after all and then i'll provide some more abstract examples uh, and maybe some more real world examples as well so recently god of war ragnarok came out and uh, i've been playing it non-stop super enjoying the game it's really fun i'm happy to be back in that world in the nine realms again um, and what I really like about the game is I think the writing is, is quite solid. Um, the story itself is, you know, I think you can attribute a lot of the story's driving force to the writers examining, examining the relationship between Kratos' sort of battle-hardened pragmatic approach to life versus Atreus' more childlike curiosity and naivete. And those two competing forces drive the plot. Um, and a lot of events, a lot of events in the game so far anyway, I'm not going to do any spoilers, don't worry. So far in the game, a lot of the events have happened because Atreus is very curious about the whys of the world. You know, why is, are, are things the way they are? Why do things have to turn out the way they will? And Kratos is like relatively incurious, at least outwardly, um, and towards Atreus. And he takes the attitude of avoiding thinking about, discussing, or even doing anything really if it doesn't directly relate to him and Atreus. Um, and over the course of the story, up to the point that I'm at, the consequences of these forces competing is that they end up pushing each other to their extremes because they're both trying to force their way of thinking and living on the other person. Um, and this competition of forces and, and ways of thinking, or forces as ways of thinking, I guess, are, are used effectively as narrative driver in other games, like Ghost of Tsushima, which is a game I played somewhat recently, and it's uh, I've, I adore that game. So the protagonist, Jin, Jin Sakai, private eye, standoff guy, science guy, uh, start off the game starts off the game as like a devoted samurai under his uncle lord shimura who is the ruler by proxy of tsushima it's called the jito i don't really understand what function that is but essentially he rules over the island of tsushima it's a japanese territory the mongols invade uh, and then when the samurai meet them at the beach shimura in customary samurai culture sends his best swordsman to meet the mongol army and he challenges their best swordsman one-on-one uh, thereby hoping, you know, the idea being like, if my best guy can be your best guy, then we don't need to worry about whose army is stronger and we can avert a, co a costly war. Um, also, uh, just a quick note here. Whenever I say samurai culture, customary with, you know, it's within the context of the game. I don't know a lot about samurai culture and I know it varied wildly across the hundreds of years. It was the dominant force in Japan. So I am not going to, I'm not making any, any statements about samurai culture in the real world. Again, this is samurai culture in Ghost of Tsushima which is a fictional, you know, it's a, it's a heavily drama inspired by historical events, but a fictional story. So on the beach, uh, Shimura sends down this number one swordsman and the Khan, who is a cousin of Genghis. I don't, it's not Genghis. Uh, I don't remember what his name is, but the Khan of the Mongol army, uh, looks at the dude, spits wine on him and then lights him on fire and kills him and speaking and then speaking Japanese warns the samurai that he knows all their tactics and therefore will be able to subvert them. Um, 
And then a full-on assault happens on the beach and the samurai get destroyed. Most of them are killed. Shimura is captured and the Lord Shimura is captured and Jin is left for dead. So he wakes up and he gets nursed. Again, I'm not going to do any spoilers. This is like the very beginning of the game, like beginning of the first act, you know? So he wakes up, Jin wakes up, you're the protagonist, and is nursed back to health by Yuna, who's a thief. And she implicitly and explicitly kind of demonstrates the effectiveness of a more backstabbing snake in the grass type approach to combat. And Jin, obviously, at this point, he's a hard traditionalist like his uncle. He initially rejects this. But as he learns how badly the samurai were beaten, you know, all of his friends are dead, basically, he kind of relents and begins to adopt a more pragmatic approach. And pragmatism, you know, I've said this word a couple times this podcast, in the interest of not repeating my dichotomy uh, disaster from last episode, I guess, I'm going to define pragmatism based on what I read off of uh, Google, which was the Oxford definition. I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but it's essentially dealing with things based on fact rather than what could or should be. So sort of, I sort of view this as like present versus future. You're focusing much more on the present. You're thinking a lot more short term because that's where the problem is. And in wartime, yeah, this is very much the case. So as Jin fights to liberate Tsushima, the sort of theme of pragmatism versus traditionalism, you know, him, his newfound pragmatism versus uncle's traditionalism becomes a strong undercurrent in the plot because his relationship with his uncle, who is also his father figure and mentor, changes over the course of the game. Uh, and this culminates in what I found to be an incredibly effective emotional payoff at the end of the game and was really the standout point in the story, much more than sort of like the overarching plot, which is kind of what the player is working towards with the whole game through the gameplay, you know, liberating the island of Tsushima that goal, the way that that goal is reached is much less important to me than the emotional payoff of this sort of almost a subplot. It's it's the undercurrent that drives the whole thing, but it's it's very much more subtle. You know, you know, you're going around stabbing Mongols in the throat in an attempt to liberate Tsushima. You're not really doing the same thing, trying to reconcile with your uncle so much. Um, and when examining, you know, pragmatism versus traditionalism, the way they drive the plot uh, is is basically by pushing the other to its ugly extreme. So I kind of think of life as, you know, to, to abstract this a little bit, I kind of think of life as like a bicycle wheel. Uh, you know, you have spokes that go right through the center of the bicycle wheel and go all the way to the walls. And these lines uh, are competing forces. You know, on one side of the center, you have pragmatism. On the other side, you have traditionalism. And generally speaking, for most of the competing forces on this bicycle wheel, um, the closer you get to the walls, of the wheel, I think the uglier the competing force gets. So traditionalism, let's talk about traditionalism because this is kind of what spurs on Jin's slide into pragmatism. Traditionalism is a core foundation of society. It, a society need, needs norms and, tra and traditions to build around, to even exist in the first place. You know, a lot of the reason any culture exists, any society, any language, like language is a massive cultural thing. And the only reason any of this exists is because a large group of people agreed that it existed. And you need these things. So if you're continually changing them, you know, in a pragmatic, and a lot of these things might spring out of a pragmatic approach to life. You know, we needed better ways to communicate with each other. So we invented language. That's a pragmatic thing. But what language you have is determined by your traditions and your society. And so if you continually change these fundamental building blocks and break them down and, and reinvent them constantly, you won't really have a cohesive society anymore. It either won't form or, or it itself will break down. Um, in Ghost of Tsushima, Lord Shimura however, shows why strict and, you know, seemingly almost blind adherence to these seemingly virtuous tenets can be foolish, especially in the face of a true survival situation. Why sticking to your traditions in the just for the sake of sticking to your traditions is a negative thing. Samurai culture, again, in this game, believes that honor is basically the peak, you know, die with honor, kill with honor, live with honor, 
all that stuff. Basically, everything is like you dishonor is the worst thing you can bring upon your your own name or your family's name. And Shimura, to this end, is essentially willing to let the entire islands of Tsushima go extinct. He never says this. He never says like, oh, they can die for all I care. You know, if they don't, if they if they don't die honorably, who cares? He doesn't say explicitly that. But the fact that he gets captured, his entire samurai force gets annihilated on the beach by an enemy who knows his every move, yet he doesn't bend at all, shows that he is much more willing to sacrifice his entire society to maintain this sort of like, if you think about it, abstract and relatively arbitrary definition of honor. Um, it's only it's only a tradition because enough people agreed that this was important, that honor was important. Um, and this is where, as a person, you know, you can realize and Jin kind of realizes that honor and virtue are relatively arbitrary as a society as a whole. So dying to defend an arbitrary and abstract value doesn't make a lot of sense for the average person. In, in the context of the game, a samurai's duty, as well as a leader's duty, you know, generally includes protecting your subjects. Like, that's the whole point. That's part of the reason you rule over them is because, you, you know, ideally, in an ideal world, you know better and you, therefore you can protect them better and you can lead civili this civilization to a, a better future because you know how to do so. And so, like I said, in this case, fighting with honor is, is also directly leading to the general population being massacred en masse. So it's, all, it's almost incompatible with itself. And this is why blind faith is such a terrifying thing. And this is the extreme of anything. As soon as you start believing in it for its own sake, you get close to the wall of that bicycle wheel. It, it becomes really ugly, I think. You know, Shimura is so blind to the fact that his strict adherence to the samurai code would eventually result in his people being wiped out and the people under his rule, under his care, being wiped out. But he doesn't, it doesn't register because he's so blindly committed to this traditionalist viewpoint. And this is where getting close to the wheel of that traditionalist wall is gets ugly. This is very ugly. In a time of crisis, generally pragmatic solutions are going to be the most effective. In survival situations, you know, pragmatism, like we said, is defined by focusing on the here and now rather than the if and then. So one needs to focus on the facts, right? Rather than what could be. You know, your, your people are having their existence threatened, right? You can't really defend your people if you're dead on a beach somewhere and they can't really worry about being honorable if they're dead tomorrow, right? If tomorrow isn't guaranteed, you need to secure your future first before you can really adopt these lofty ideals of virtue and honor and all that stuff. Pragmatism and traditionalism generally have the same goal, making survival as likely as possible. Maybe not as easy, but as likely. The main difference is, like I said, in practice, pragmatism manifests usually as short-term thinking. I have a problem now. I need to deal with it now. A saber tooth is running me down now. I can't think about tomorrow because if I do that, I'm dead. So traditionalism is more concerned with the long term. Both of these, however, I've been railing against traditionalism here. Both of these have their use cases, right? In peacetime, pragmatism isn't as necessary because, you know, I ideally peacetime society is a decent quality of life. Basic needs are taken care of. There isn't like a massive looming threat of invasion or some other, you know, threat. Um, traditionalism takes over in helping maintain and shape society for the better for long term. Having a virtuous aspiration for your people is a good thing. Building a society where people are less self-interested, which is pragmatic and short-term, and more interested in their collective uh, survival leads to a lot of really cool advancements in a lot of different areas. You know, a lot of technological advancements were only made possible through the cooperation of a collective. And you can't have a collective if you're all self-interested and, and extremely pragmatic. But in wartime, 
worrying about the future of society, like I said, is relatively moot if no one's guaranteed a tomorrow. So most of the time, the leader should probably want to worry about securing the ability to have a future rather than planning that future out, if that makes sense. It's kind of like the advice my dad gave me for fall mania, you know, keep your head in the moment. Don't think about what you're going to do at the end of this. Think about what you're going to do in the middle of it and, and during it. So Shimura, like I said, example of how rigid and extreme adherence to one school of thought, in this case, traditionalism, can be extremely harmful. He's a great example of that. But his worry, and this is very important, what he was worried about was the opposite of, of you know, this of pragmatism taking over. The way that the society was structured is that the samurai of Tsushima were respected. They were not feared. They served their people. You know, a lot of the side quests in Ghost of Tsushima were just, you know, some of them were even just simple errands for peasants who didn't have the time to run over to the next town so you would go grab them something. And sometimes that would, you know, morph into like some crazy quest or whatever. But it they generally started as like, hey, man, my chickens ran away. Can you go get them, essentially, you know, like in Zelda? And what Shimura was worried about was that by presenting Jin as the leader of this rebellion against the Mongols and the leader of the fight, when he's using these dirty, underhanded, terrifying tactics, was that society would start to fear the samurai. And it's very interesting. You know, if you think about this, if you think about what do you think would be more preferable to the working class, right? If you have a society whose ruling class uses their power and their privilege to aid the working class, you know, like a samurai should do, you know, help people with their errands, all that stuff, generally be wandering stewards, protect them from danger, rather than instead of doing that, intimidating them into submission by, you know, threatening them or imprisoning them and stuff like that. Shimura believed that the former, you know, respect, earning the people's reverence via actually, you know, leading by example was a much better solution. And I'm inclined to agree with that. I completely agree that the, the root, the kernel of what he's worried about is true. If the samurai becomes this like government secret police, essentially, that will just enforce the hand of the, uh, the laws of the emperor, they're the right hand of the emperor, you know, the long arm of the law, and they just start killing people en masse because, you know, like a peasant stole a loaf of bread or something and they behead him in a public square for everyone to see, that would probably have a net negative on society. So you can see this, this idea of pragmatism versus traditionalism the clash is completely realistic and i think that's why um that's why the story is so effective for me is you have this notion that each side has their viewpoint that is good but the more that they clash against each other the further they bounce away and the closer they get to the wheels of the bicycle which as we know gets pretty ugly from what we've seen so our next two forces are, are kind of related, kind of related, but I'll try to use some more real world examples, you know, to take this conversation out of the abstract, out of the fictional and put it into real life examples. Obviously, again, these are just going to be hypothetical and anecdotal. So bear with me here. Um, so recently I was talking to my dad about stoicism because I've been thinking about stoicism and being stoic and what it means to be stoic. And I had to look up the definition. My dad, again, corrected me on this. The, my members of my family are, are very good checks at keeping me on the ground and making sure I'm not running away with faulty information. Um, so I looked it up. It was originally a third century uh, BC, third century BC, actually, Greek philosophy that was essentially maximize positive emotion, minimize negative emotion. And from there, an individual can hone the virtues of their character. Right. So you focus on the positive, you sort of dismiss the negative and use the positive in your life to hone your character. Right. So for a long time, Stoicism has been associated or at least run parallel to the ideals of traditional masculinity, at least in North America. I won't speak for Europe, but and, and, you know, that's all fancy speak to say, you know, specifically the reading of minimizing negative emotions leads to real men don't cry. That's the classic thing. When you think stoic, you think like, take it on the chin, stiff upper lip, stand up straight, real men don't cry, just deal with it. 
of course, this can apply, apply to everybody, not just men, obviously. And the same people who say, like, real men don't cry are probably the same people who say, like, women are too emotional, etc. And they're super cringe. Um, but stoicism has traditionally been prized by men as a, as a virtuous characteristic of them. Um, so recently, I would say society has begin begun to swing away from that for good reason. You know, there's plenty of evidence that, you know, showing <laughs> that the idea of that showing emotion makes you weak or less of a man leads to men feeling much more isolated in their lives and having higher suicide rates than women. And this is at least in part due to the fact that if you're stoic your whole life and you just take everything on the chin, you probably don't ever feel comfortable or learn how to process your emotions or learn how to talk them through with somebody else. And I would, you know, most people would agree. And I would argue that this is kind of like an essential function of a human being. You know, you need to be able to think through your emotions and, and you don't just, but there's a bit, John Mulaney has a bit where he's talking about, I think his Irish dad. And he's like, so the idea with my dad was, you know, I have all these emotions and I'll bury them deep, deep down. And then one day I'll die. And that, that was it. There was never any, the bit was like, he's not dealing with them. He's not ever trying to process them or understand why he feels the way he feels. He's just going to ignore them until he's dead. And then he won't have to worry about it anymore. And that's not a good way to live. And this is, I think where you can, you get a lot of guys with, you know, maybe some rage issues or, or suicidal tendencies or feeling very isolated um, and not feeling like they have anybody or a support network who will actually listen to them and talk to them when they need it. Um, so this is, and and you still have this this group of people in the world. I watched recently, I watched a, a press conference from an NFL player and his teammate was traded and his teammate was a very close friend of his. And some one of the reporters was like, well, how do you feel about the trade? And he got very emotional and he was sad about it because his best friend got traded away and now he doesn't get to work with him every day and all that stuff. And you still had people being like, oh my God, get over it. It's not like he died. He could still like FaceTime him and text message him and stuff. It's like, man, has COVID not taught you anything? Like you can't substitute like the occasional phone call and FaceTime with actual human interaction and genuine friendship, especially when you experience that friendship every day at your job. You can't, oh, you shouldn't be crying. Like, shut up, man. Like, my man just lost a friend, essentially. Did you never have a friend move away as a kid? Like, I had a friend move away as a kid, and I cried. And, like, he moved, like, 20 minutes away. He just wasn't going to the same school as me anymore. But still, I didn't get to see him every day, and it felt like I was losing him out of my life. And I, I kind of did. And that sucks. And to have somebody be like, oh, you shouldn't cry about that because, like, it's not like he died. What? I don't know, man. That's dumb. Um, we have plenty, plenty of examples of how like overindulging in stoicism leads to trouble and, you know, how getting close to the wall of the bicycle wheel gets ugly. Um, but I think, you know, the, so we're swinging towards the opposite and well, away from stoicism, a competing force. I shouldn't say opposite. And I'm, I've been trying to stay away from opposite because these aren't necessarily opposites. They just compete with each other. It's not quite the same thing. So I think a force that competes with stoicism is contemplation. The act of, you know, thoughtfully uh, you know, thinking, well, thoughtfully thinking about stuff, duh. the act of thinking things through, you know, trying to process your emotions, find the root of them, hopefully address them. And in a productive way that allows you to heal and learn from your experiences, right? Identifying why you feel a certain way. This is, in my opinion, a super crucial component of understanding not only the situation that you find yourself in emotionally, but also yourself as a person. What do you want out of these situations? So, like I said, plenty of examples of overindulging in stoicism, but you know, we also have similar examples for over-contemplating, over-contemplation. Figuring out the roots of the problem is absolutely important, and contemplating helps one understand what might need to be done to change it. But oftentimes, over-contemplating can occur, which is, you know, where people start thinking what might or might not happen if they make their proposed changes. What if my choice is wrong? What if I end up making things worse? What if I'm missing something? And I would wager 
that most folks with anxiety have felt this way in spades before. You know, I've heard many people talk about this, especially if they have anxiety, but par paralysis by analysis, essentially, right? Of like, I've, I've felt like this, you know, you feel like you have a billion choices. So making the right one feels impossible. And so what ends up happening, I, I think a lot of the time is that this manifests in inaction. Like you just don't make a choice because making a choice is, is less comfortable than what the situation you're in right now. And I mean, how many times have you stayed in like a long-term relationship for, or a job for months too long? And then you look back in hindsight, like, what was I thinking? Obviously not talking about like an abusive relationship that functions on a completely different level. But I would say that most people, or at least me, have been in relationships where like you get out of it and then six months later, you're like, what the hell, man? Why was I in that for like a year longer than I should have been? Um, and I, th I have a theory about this. <laughs> Excuse me. I have a theory about this. Again, this is just a theory. I think that, you know, if you, if you look at events on a scale from one to 10, with one being life is a little bit uncomfortable and 10 being life is very uncomfortable. Most of the time, a subpar relationship or a job lands people like, you know, kind of on the lower end, you know, three out of four on the day to day. Right. But actually making a change, you know, having a, having a tough conversation with your partner or leaving them completely or changing jobs, um, that bumps the uncomfortableness up because of all these unknowns, you know, like, what if, what if I have this conversation and it blows up in my face? What if I leave them and I'm, I'm alone forever? You know, I don't know how to be alone. I don't know who I am. What if I get to a new job and the new job is worse than my current one? All these unknowns make the process of, of actually making that change and taking action feel very much more uncomfortable by relation. It bumps it up to, you know, maybe a seven or eight. Again, these are all just completely arbitrary, but just to give some, just to try and quantify it a bit. Again, paralysis by analysis, where making your life more uncomfortable is a feeling that we innately look to avoid, even if it's just short term. Even if after that short period of, you know, getting out of the relationship and, and then, you know, getting used to being single again or finding a new job, that process is a seven or eight out of 10, but then it actually makes our life back down to a one or zero out of 10 once we adjust. So people end up usually sticking with the mild discomfort. They'll stick with the three out of 10 because bumping your life up to a seven or eight out of 10 with no implicit guarantee that it'll come back down feels terrible. But what ends up happening is that a three out of 10 discomfort for like 15 years, if you look at, you know, a long-term job or a marriage or something is way worse than like one year of three out of 10, six months of seven or eight out of 10, and then, you know, back to one or zero, but these aren't guaranteed. So it feels more uncomfortable. And so a lot of people don't make these decisions. How many people do you know, or maybe you've done it yourself where you've stayed in a relationship too long or stayed in a job too long or not, or didn't change your eating habits, even though you were gaining weight, Ryan, Spark, um, and then, you know, didn't set up an exercise regimen, all these little things, or didn't launch your podcast or stop doing your YouTube. There's so many different things where you just, or at least for me, end up not making the decision because starting something and making that change is so much less comfortable on the short term than staying where you are. And this is where I think there's an absolutely an argument for stoicism being an important ingredient in this. Stoicism tends to put you in an action state. It says, okay, well, you know, ideally you've contemplated your options, not necessarily, but if you have contemplated your options, like you have your options, I need to ignore my emotions for now, just for now, not, not forever, but on the short term, I do need to ignore my emotions and my misgivings and my what ifs and, oh my God, this could go terrible. I need to ignore that and just do it. Just get it done. Nike has it right on some level, not the whole sweatshops thing, but on the slogan, I think it's pretty good. And I think this is a key part of making any significant changes in your life. Change can be scary. You know, it's kind of like, you know, to oversimplify it a bit, it's kind of like jumping into a pool because there's something on the other side. You have to swim through the pool. 
you don't really know what you want. Uh, like you don't know the temperature of the pool. Something on the other side of the pool is something you really want. You have to swim across to get there. You don't know if it's too cold. You don't know if it's too hot and you'll jump in and maybe it is too cold or too hot. And then, but as you swim, you'll get adjusted. And then when you get out the other side, you'll have what you want from three up to three out of 10, up to seven, eight out of 10, down to one out of 10 in that example. You'll never jump in if you don't have a stoic moment of like, screw it, I got to do this. It'll be a lot more difficult. And I think the last, you know, very a sort of general summation, I think general positivity and negativity are also two competing forces that kind of um, uh, need to be balanced a little bit. Because again, you do need a little bit of both. And I think, you know, the whole idea here is that I don't know the ratio. There's no perfect default ratio that's that's ever going to happen, right? Like you're not going to be able to be like, ah, you know, just like last week with hard work versus luck, you know, you're not you're never going to be able to like, ah, yes, 60/40 luck hard work or 60/40 hard work luck, whatever. You're never going to be able to be like, oh, this situation, you know, every situation requires 70% contemplation, 30% stoicism. It it doesn't really work like that. But the I think the idea is that for the general experience and the general situation someone's going to find themselves in you don't want to be too close to the walls of the bike the wheels the walls of the wheel of the bike because it gets very ugly very quick and you don't want to default to it we see what happens you know the negativity like when people default to negativity it's just cringe like that you know i'm sure some of you saw this if you're on twitter there was a tweet that went around the other day and some lady's like you know it's it's days like this where i'm you know, I got to wake up this morning and spend a few hours and a couple cups of coffee in the garden talking to my partner. And we do this frequently and we never run out of things to talk about. I love this guy. And most people were like, yeah, all right. Or didn't say anything. And some people who default to negativity were like, well, did you ever think that some people don't have gardens and some people don't have three hours before work in the morning? Some people don't have the money. To and it's like, why? Like, I understand, you know, like the understanding your privilege is important, but you're in a public forum saying something that's pretty harmless. You know, you're not coming down on everybody. Why do people feel the need to, to insert themselves into this and then say, you know, like, well, these people are terrible because their life is better than mine and they're talking about it. She wasn't flexing. She was just expressing appreciation for her husband. And it's not like she was like, God, I love having so much money. God, I love uh, all you stupids in abusive relationships should just leave forehead. It's not like she was saying that she was just expressing her happiness and for some reason, certain people really don't like that. It's very obvious when when negativity, you know, constantly being negative is is unhelpful, but constantly being positive is, is unhelpful as well. I mean, the people who have been following Kanye for the past few weeks and, you know, when he had another meltdown on Twitter and, and said some incredibly anti-Semitic things, they were like, and then he got like dropped by all of his sponsors. People were like, Oh yeah, he's got them right where he wants them. You know, like he doesn't, he didn't want to be with Adidas anymore. He's doing, he got out of his contract with no penalties, a free man. He can do exactly what he wants. This is what he wanted to do. He needs, and that's blindly following somebody who clearly doesn't have the, needs help and doesn't have the slightest idea what they're doing because Kanye then went to Skechers and was like, please sell my sneaker without realizing that Skechers was owned by Jewish people, which is so funny but people will still be like, no, he knows what he's doing. Same thing with Elon and Twitter. Elon's got no clue what he's doing on Twitter. And he's never going to admit that. But the people who really like Elon also won't admit that. Like he said, ah, anyway, that's like an, an entire other podcast. But the idea is this is an example of positivity. Assuming somebody always knows better. You know, it's not it doesn't take place in the most like traditionally smiley, positive form. But that is blindly following somebody. You know, you're blindly assuming that this person knows what's best. And that's a positive interaction. And Oh, it's 
it's it's an interaction based around feeling positive about somebody. It is not a positive interaction. I think the main takeaway is again from all this nonsense is that you know you should try and find the right balance for a situation. You should be cognizant of these competing forces and you should be cognizant of the benefits and drawbacks of overindulging in either one. The balance isn't always going to be directly in the center, you know, I'm, I'm, but I think it's usually going to be closer to the center than to the extremes. And that's my, that's my thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, thanks for listening, folks. Really appreciate it. I tried to make this one a little bit less rambly and a little bit more uh, note-oriented. Um, so let me know if you saw any improvement from last week. I think I stuck to the points I wanted to make and didn't get distracted. I had much better notes this time as well, like I said. Um, this episode is sponsored by nobody because I'm doing this because I want to. Um, and if you want to give me feedback, as always, twitch.tv slash sparkcity. You can talk to me while I'm live or you can exclamation mark discord in my chat while I'm not live and join my discord and talk to me there. You can find me on Twitter at the Spark City. Hope everybody enjoys. Hope that didn't come off as too preachy or anything. Uh, and uh, thank you all for listening very much again. I really appreciate it. I will, uh, I will see, talk to you all next week. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.